Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com changelog. This episode of JS Party is brought to you by our friends at Sentry. Sentry is an open source error tracking application that shows you every crash in your stack as it happens. It gives you details to prioritize, identify, reproduce, and fix each issue. They also give you information to support your team so you can use that information to reach out to those affected. Head to changelog.com Sentry. Start tracking your errors today for free. Get off the ground with their free plan. Once again, changelog.com slash sentry. Tell me sent you. And now onto the show. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Fridays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelog.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time. Head to changelog.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JSPartyFM. And now on to the show. Welcome to JS Party, where it's a party every week with JavaScript. Uh, I'm Michael Rogers. I'm Rachel White. And I'm Alex Sexton. And on the show today, we also have Kat Marchon and Rebecca Turner from NPM. Why don't y'all say hi? Hi. Hi. So let's jump right into it. Uh, we really want to talk about NPM 5 today. We're really excited about it. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit of the backstory behind NPM 5 and why this is such a, a big deal uh, release? It's kind of a big deal. Um, it is. So the story of NPM 5 is that last October, September, when was it? October. NPM 4. So last October, we released NPM 4, and therefore we couldn't use the number 4 anymore. So we needed, you know, a bigger number to release, and we chose 5 as a, as a valid um, increment for an integer. Um, <laughs> the further story is, you know, we've had a lot of, like, breaking changes that we've been doing for a while, and that's usually what we do in major releases. But most important was we've had this cache rewrite on schedule in some way or another for five years. Like we've been putting it off. Yeah. Pretty much. Uh, it was it was meant to be this rewrite that we we expected it to be mostly an internal improvement, right? It was it was going to maybe speed things up slightly, maybe it was going to fix a lot of our issues, but we mostly saw it as this architectural improvement. And Sometime mid early last year, we decided that we're just going to bite the bullet and we're going to do the cache rewrite. Like we've yeah. been talking about it for five years. We have close many issues going like this will be ki- this will be fixed by the mythical cache rewrite that we've been talking about for five years. And so we were like, all right, when can we next do it? We can probably do it for for Q1. Uh, and so that's the schedule that we set for ourselves last year. Yeah, and then Cat started playing around with it in. November. Yeah, it was November. It was when I started at, looking at it. And we first started to actually see results. At, I think you tried it out in late January. Late January, early February is and, when I could actually And we were it. really surprised to find that it was unbelievably faster. The old cache was, I still don't know how it was as slow as it was. It was slower than just fetching from the network sometimes, if, if, like, if it was faster at all. Like, yeah. it was just not very fast. Like we still don't know why it was that slow, but it's it true. was. <laughs> that's that's interesting. I'd be interested in that data. <laughs> what happened? You know, tell us because I have no idea. 
<laughs> so so it's faster. So much faster. Um, I I don't think I don't think that's the only performance update though, right? There's a couple other things that you did to improve the performance around this time. Yeah, I mean that got us like a a five x speed increase over older NPMs, and then it was like, wow, that was a lot faster. And now like other improvements start to actually like seem meaningful. You know, what before would have been like, well, that's like a 10% improvement in speed, but it was taking so long anyway that it wasn't a big win. Now it was. So yeah, we did a bunch of other things. Probably the single biggest uh, aspect of the, the speed in the new version is uh, the, the new lock file shrink wrap support. Yeah. That having those allows the install to be much faster. Uh, it's part of the reason we made a lock file by default was just speed. Yeah. Um, like NPM five was the speed. And I say, I'd say the second one was like usability improvements that we did. Yeah. Like we were just like, all right, it's a major version. People care about usability. What can we do to make this tool like easier to use? And, and, and some insight here, like there's a reason that we didn't save by default for so many years, right? Like you have to understand that NPM was originally designed, intended for, and used as a library, like a node library developer's tool. It is almost ideal. It is practically ideal if you are a node developer writing libraries to publish on the NPM registry. That is what Isaac designed it for. It was specific, it was designed for a very specific workflow. And NPM library authors are not the people who use NPM the most these days anymore, right? Like True. The, the registry is too big. Li library authors were the majority of node developers in 2012. Mm -hmm. um, not so much now. <laughs> now we're pretty much developers, right? So um, in, in that vein, uh, one of the things I was excited to see um, was the Simlink stuff. So uh, yes. Stripe, uh, where I work, has a mono repo, and we definitely have some like uh, jujitsu around like trying to move libraries that are in our thing into our dependencies but have like dependencies still work among our sub dependencies all in the same repo and the simlink stuff uh seems to solve a bunch of that can you explain how that works or, or i guess i kind of did part of that but uh, sure. I, I i enjoyed that so so what we did is we made it so that we had we've had this file specifier since npm2 so you could like npm install a local directory and it was, it was added in at the very end of the NPM2 development cycle, and it wasn't super well integrated into the rest of the NPM product. So like, what went into the shrink wrap was never fully specified and has varied over time in, in various bad ways. Because when it was originally put in, the fact that it even worked in shrink wraps was kind of an accident. <laughs> um, when we were working on designing NPM5, one of the things we wanted to do was to make the uh, shrink wrap situation and thus, you know, block files generally make more sense and work better. And so one of the pieces of that was defining what do file specifiers do? And we we're having a lot of problems figuring out like how this should work until we got the idea that maybe these should just be links. And by making file specifiers install to links, it solved all of the other problems we we're having with that. And it turns out it's super useful. And this is actually, there's a module on the, the registry called link local which was already doing this. So we essentially just took the behavior of link local and implemented it as core NPM behavior. That's interesting. Um, there are some, uh, like the mono repo use case, that there's still quite a bit of work to be done there as far as like smoothing that out. Um, I would expect to see more, um, expect more on that in the next like coming six months. Cool. Uh, we, have, we have a number of ideas we think will make that better. Uh, incidentally, like in, internally, NPM's like own website has moved towards a mono repo. So 
we're getting to like dog food that pretty strongly now. That's encouraging. Yeah, I, I, I have to say like my favorite feature actually probably is the the default save stuff. I, I think that the first bug in most of my packages that I received from other people is you forgot to actually add this dependency because I use save for, you know, dash dash save for half of the things that I installed and then not one of them. <laughs> and this just completely solves that. I'm so excited about it. Me too. I think we've been we've been pushing to try and do this for a while, but it's like, how do we push this in? Like this is you know, this is a serious change in people's NPM workflow, right? Like, this is not a change that we could do lightly, as small as it seems. But it basically became non-optional when we decided to do the package locks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, let's, you know, let's, let's get into that. Like, that's a really, really big change in terms of default behavior, right? Yeah. We're, so we're moving to optimize the default path for users as much as possible. Like, we are also, like, we're trying to cut back on how much configuration you can do. And make things like make things like configurations more binary seeming rather than so instead of saying like oh here's your cache min here's your cache max now you have three options you have dash dash offline to force npm to use offline or or crash prefer offline which is essentially cache min nine 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 and then prefer online which forces um, the cache to check that everything is fresh like cache min zero yeah the like cache max. Cash max zero. No, oh. Because it's still 304 checks. Right, right. Cash max would make it not even 304 check. Right, right. So we we have stuff on the pipeline now, things like I've, I've talked about dash dash low mem, which I kind of want to, I need to spec out and hopefully get in something like yeah, that. Yeah, that would be really exciting. Yeah. So um, literally a mode, an NPM that like drops concurrency massively and then make sure to stream everything. So you have like very, very low memory usage for NPM, which is great for people running on on constrained VPSs. And embedded systems, which yes. is a surprisingly common use case. Mm -hmm. That is interesting that the install would happen on the embedded system versus somewhere else and then just load it on. Right. But mm -hmm. it's because they do, you know, it's just because like that, that has been people's like development mode. Like they want to do their development on it. I imagine for like deploying it, they wouldn't do it that way. I would hope. But while they're working on it, they still have like the little, you know, Raspberry Pi yeah. sitting to their computer. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's easier than or having to whatever. do all the setup to do deployments uh, to yeah. know, clients. I, th I think one of the primary overarching stories behind a lot of this is most people do a thing and they do that thing and they're like, how come NPM doesn't do this? And, and I think uh, no one's invoked the, the yarn word yet, but uh, I think a lot of what yarn was was hey, there's this use case that if we take away all these other constraints that NPM has and all these other things that uh, they have to do, then we can do this other thing very quickly uh, and add some features. Um, and it seems like a primary story of NPM is that there are a lot of different use cases and continuing to support all those like has very unique challenges in in places that people don't even consider. Yeah, I mean, you know, NPM's the default. And that means that we have to support all these people, not just new people that are coming in, but, you know, what, five, six years of right. people who have old setups and, and don't want to have their their cheese move too much. Although right. that's the, <laughs> we had a conversation yesterday, but maybe that's a bit of a weird metaphor at this point. But um, I think it's OK for NPM to make trade-offs that other things can't. Like, I don't think we're, we're not going to sacrifice the user base that we have in order to primarily serve web developers. If you can serve both, then that's what we'll do. We'll optimize for like spreading out. Um, another aspect of NPM5 is that it is 
probably our more significant, our most significant step in a while towards breaking NPM down into significant chunks with the intention of like the dream here is to the platonic ideal, if you, if you will, is to be able to take all the components that NPM uses right now, pick only the ones that you like and need, and then cook up your own package manager for your particular community. Like, <laughs> yeah. and you'd be able to have all the, you know, all the work that you don't have to change, you won't have to rewrite. So we have several new packages that are meant to be used by the community more generically. We're talking about how the heck we yank out parts of the installers so that people can make decisions about how they install the tree. Like a really good example of things that NPM isn't going to sacrifice is NPM as a very, <laughs> I can see us sacrificing it maybe in like some distant future, but right now it is a very core tenet of NPM that we do not do dependency hell. Like, NPM is the package manager you use when you never, ever want to run into dependency hell. That's why we did the, the peer dependencies change. Um, for those unfamiliar, dependency hell is when you have two packages have dependency on two incompatible versions of the same other package. And there's two ways to resolve that diamond. Either you install both versions of the package in nested dependencies, which is what NPM does, or you have some kind of conflict resolution mechanism where you can tell one package to use the wrong dependency, wrong according to Simber. So you, you will introduce a thing here where you are forced to choose what to break and how and hope that it works. NPM will probably refuse to do that for the foreseeable future. It's why we never integrated any kind of flat install like Bauer would do. Like, we're just not going to do that. I don't see us doing that. No. Even though flat installs are really important to web developers, Right. Like, you don't want seven versions of jQuery just because you have seven jQuery plugins. Right. We want to we want to maximize how flat our tree is so that you know people using tools like Webpack or Rollup are able to use tools to to reduce the package size of that, right? But as far as guaranteeing that something is going to be unique in the tree, uh, unless you use something like PureDepths manually or you have your own mechanism for setting up your global according to your own decisions, NPM won't be installing only one version of incompatible packages. Yeah. But that's the kind of thing that we could, that we would hope that people would be able to build on our tools to make that if they wanted yes. a package manager that did that. It would be fantastic to have basically a bout <laughs> that literally just wraps Pagoche and does the flat tree. Yeah. Yeah. Very hard. <laughs> <laughs> Planning. I feel like it's a, it's a common place for a project, the age of NPM to reach this, uh, building like pieces part i think it it like speaks to the success and breadth of usage uh i, I like there's the jquery ui builder it's like build the parts of jquery ui you need modernizer as a builder is too many tests Babel switched in at five or i think five or whatever in order to do all the like here's each individual transform versus one uh thing so I feel like it's like once you reach some certain level of usage, there's no way you could possibly uh, nicely give everyone everything they want in a single package. And so I, I think the the idea of like offering the building blocks to doing an NPM like project and then you write the one thing that's different is, is nice and good. That's it's a, a good vision you have. Uh, what we have today is we have our the, the cache, the new cache. Is a content addressable cache, and it's in Kakash, C-A-C-A-C-H-E, and uh, 
which is a pain to spell cash. <laughs> it's a Canadian cash. <laughs> but uh, it, it's super fast and it has a very nice API. And that's how all of the, all the, the NPM5 cache access is built on that. And then there's Picoche, which is, uh, we'll, we'll provide links. It's a it's a manifest and tarball fetching library. Yes. Like it doesn't do it, it does all the resolution of identifiers and stuff like that, identical to what NPM does, and in fact is what NPM uses yeah. now. So you can tell it you can say pacoche.extract and then you give it like, you know, npm at five, and it will extract the contents of the npm at five tarball according to Semba resolution rules into a local directory. So it's a very generic tool for like doing that and it also gives you access to manifest information so you can ask for manifest to see what dependencies you're going to have to install and it supports all the sources that npm does yes so it's so yeah the registry but also git sources including the new git simber support mm -hmm. which is a, a one of the other exciting new features and building yes yeah you can build depth uh git depths now if you have a prepare script and you uh npm i a git dependency we will install its step dependencies and run the install script to pretend that you're, you know, basically simulate publishing to a registry. I see. You're cannibalizing NPM Enterprise. Uh, <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> um, I guess you'd have to have GitHub Enterprise to fully cannibalize. It but, is uh, not that, <laughs> by the way. We <laughs> have depths for every single Git depth. That is not something you want to do a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, how does it differ from like tagging something in? Oh, I guess the the resolution of the tag will can like increase in version is a difference. So before you used to be able to do a git dep and do like hash some tag version number, and so now you're saying that you can kind of uh, do like a, a caret version number and it will like grab the correct sember. Yep, it'll do that according to references. Awesome, that is nifty. So uh, getting, I want to go like a little bit higher level. Um, so we, we talked earlier um, on this podcast about Yarn a little bit. And just for people that don't know, Yarn's a, an NPM alternative client that pulls from the NPM registry, but it sort of touts two main features. One was performance and one was um, kind of defaulting this lock file. So given that you've done a bunch of performance and lock file work, I, I wonder if you can kind of compare um, NPM5 to, to Yarn just in, those, in terms of those two features. I mean, in terms of, so lock files, we have a different, um, you know, NPM already always had a lock file, of course, in the form of a shrink wrap. And um, so we didn't feel like we should, you know, reinvent the wheel there. So we, we just reused that for the new NPM5 package lock. The main difference between Yarn's lock file and the package lock is the so Yarn's lock file has, the it, what it stores in it is the relationships between all the modules. But it doesn't say anything about how these are installed onto disk. The NPM lock file stores all of the, the, exactly how your node modules should look when it's done. So the NPM lock file guarantees that you will have exactly the same shape of node modules as well as the same content, regardless of what you're using to install it. So I've seen Kat talk about that a little bit. Uh, you mentioned that became obvious to y'all that it was important to maintain that directory structure. What have you seen people do? What What is the like reason that is important? So I think every single person who's ever run like CI that runs on Node 4 
Note 6 and Note 7 at the same time has run into something at some point where they forget to set up a dependency or something happens with the tree. And suddenly only Node 4 breaks because Node 4 still, defa still defaults to NPM 2, which is before our flattening change. Like, people do the darndest things that rely, like... So they're, like, they're, they're grabbing into the Node modules folder directly, you mean? Like with a FS read? They do that. Sometimes okay. they just mess up their tree in some way, um, but they've been testing on one platform. And so right. being able to recreate that is exactly is really important. Yeah, I mean, in a in a perfect world, this wouldn't be the case. Um, and certainly, like when we introduced NPM three, we thought we were going into that perfect world, and and we learned very quickly that that was not the case. So people are doing all kinds of scary things to their node modules. Uh, I mean, people are doing things like having their install scripts install more modules. Like that's a thing that people do. Uh, <laughs> oh my god, it's not a thing I recommend. But it's <laughs> nested, I really don't recommend it. <laughs> nested installation. NPM install that kicks off an NPM install. Yeah, uh, or you know, download this tarball and extract it here, and some of that includes node modules. I see. Node project uh, Phantom does that in various ways. Yeah, th those of course don't affect the module. Tree. That's true. W one of the reasons I think uh, Sam, uh, who helped uh, with Yarn a little bit, was interested in doing Yarn was because of the like ability it was like a vulnerability I, I, i'm very fuzzy on this but like you could kind of like install do a lot of things with the post install script stuff is that changed at all in npm5 no and it didn't change in yarn either oh, that, okay. that, i mean we heard that too and it was very interesting because by the time yarn was released it was running all the scripts again uh, you've always been able to run npm with ignore scripts which makes it so it doesn't run any of those that's been a feature since npm1 like, if that's a concern of yours, you can set that up. It means you can't compile anything. Would things break? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, that's okay. probably yeah. why Yarn put it back in, because they realized the ecosystem very intimately relies on those on those build scripts. Everything, not just JIP, yeah. but people do all sorts of things in their in their install scripts just to set up their modules. And, sure. and we have the ecosystem we have. Is there, uh, like, a plot for some sort of way to make that safe in the future? I mean, it's... You're running. You're running someone else's code on your computer. Yeah. I mean, you're doing that when you put the module in there, yeah. right? Like your your program's going to require that module, and it could do anything. Yeah. So there is no way to make that safe. Like there is no such thing as a library code library that that makes that safe, unless you're explicitly manually vetting every module that comes through. And even then, there are always you know bugs. Yeah. Um, there are services that provide this kind of security. That why, sure. That's why we have NSP. That's why we right. have like Lyft security. That's why we have uh, SNIC. Is that yeah. how you pronounce it? SNIC? SNIC? You can also, you know, you're empowered to do, like if, you, if you're if you really paranoid about the stuff aside from reviewing them, you can also run them in uh, in jails or VMs to make sure that nothing escapes. Right. Um, but that is kind of what you have to do. And, and this is something that affects pretty much every package manager in existence, mm -hmm. pretty much. Like you, I mean, everyone that isn't um, that doesn't essentially have an editorial board accepting packages. So, like, OS package managers tend to have that. Um, if you want to get something into Debian, people are going to look at it before you put it in. Yeah. Right. But if you want to publish something to PyPy or Ruby Gems or the CPAN, no one's going to look at that. That code is not vetted. There is no approval process, so it can have anything. Now, the 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 registry is. We do have some stuff in the pipeline, which I actually don't know if I can talk about. 
because that's registered stuff and that's not my not my circus, not my monkeys. But we do have stuff to prevent the infamous worms that yes that people are worried about. So at least automated self-publishing worms will be mitigated. So you know they might rimraff your your root directory, but it'll only be your root directory, and that's I great. Think- <laughs> I think that might be the thing that I was thinking of specifically. I mean, there's something to be said, like if you're only like using it as a front end tool, maybe you're not actually executing any of the code, in which case, like a no, there could be a world where there's no scripts that run and you could still, I, I don't know, uh, not super important. That is an interesting um, part of this that I think people don't think about a ton, but it's not. I, I didn't know any good solutions other than like throw everything in a in a container. Uh, so that seems to be. <laughs> it's something that we semi-regularly revisit to see if there's anything <laughs> new that we could do. But it's something that we've we've known about and tried to deal with since the early days. Like there's issues about this going back a long yeah. time. And it's just like, well, what do you do? You you can break the ecosystem, but we don't want to break the ecosystem. Well, um, people, we don't want to get rid of scripts altogether because people people find them useful. Mm. Um, they keep asking for more. I'm like, can you stop? So we're we're coming up on the uh, the end of the segment here, but um, we've talked a ton about all the reasons why you should be you know installing npm five you know right now today because it's awesome. Um, is are there any is there anybody that needs to worry about installing npm five? Any kind of any kind of breaks that um, people might be reliant on out there that you you would say you know what hold off for a second or is it just everybody should go get it today? It's still on on app next, so everybody should not get it today because it's a pre-release. Um, there are known issues. We are tracking those and fixing those as fast as we can because now that, as we said, we have a lot of users. We have a lot of very creative users yes. who really, you know, who really do their own artisanal bespoke <laughs> uh, module setups and installations. So we're finding all that out now as people start using it. We'll have npm in that latest on Tuesday. That's the plan. Yep. Um, as with any major release of a, of a tool this core, I would say that um, you try it. Uh, you see how it works for your setup. It might work very well for your setup. Or there might be things that still need updating. If there are things that still need updating, let us know. We'll get to that. Um, but this is like this is just something that applies to pretty much any software that goes through a major yeah, I mean, as far as like intentionally things that we intentionally broke, like the oh, the breaking changes of npm five, most of those are things like the save by default and the lock file, and uh, the fact that output is no longer five miles long. I like that one. That one's nice. We yeah. have a little summary. Now. <laughs> yeah, apart from people relying on things that they really shouldn't have been relying on, like very specific parts of the output, there's not a lot that will change for um, especially not for for consumers. Of packages, right. like a lot of this is mostly on the developer end. If you currently have a shrink wrap, do you need to generate a new shrink wrap with five? No, we yeah. we will probably in in the case of most shrink wraps, I don't know if like all shrink wraps in existence, but we will update that on run. Uh, I think to notice that npm shrink wrap and package lock.json are the same format. Uh, the main difference is that npm shrink wrap is publishable and package lock is not. So shrink wrap is meant for things that like you really absolutely need to guarantee an exact tree, you know, uh, for people who install your package. So we automatically read that, we'll use it, and then we'll write it back out in the in the new format. And the thing to notice, if you keep it called npm shrink wrap, 
older versions of NPM down to like NPM at two will be able to install it. Not NPM at one because of scope packages, but like right. all the way down to two, you should be able to get identical trees pretty much. Awesome. Awesome. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. This has been fantastic. And when we come back, uh, we're going to get into Sheetzy with Jessica Lord. This episode of GS Party is brought to you by Hired. Hired matches outstanding people with the world's most innovative companies. At Hired, your dream job is waiting to apply to you. Instead of endlessly applying to companies hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with interesting opportunities. The best part is Hired is completely free to you. It won't cost you anything. In fact, they pay you to get hired. Head to hired.com slash gsparty. Don't Google it. This URL is the only way to double the hiring bonus to $600. Once again, hired.com slash gsparty. And now back to the show. Jessica Lord, and we're going to talk about Sheetzy. Um, Sheetzy is a really cool library that lets you use Google spreadsheets for visualizing info, and it's really awesome. And Jessica, you should tell us about it better than I can. <laughs> well, I think you did a really great job because that's basically it. Um, <laughs> it's a really small library to build quick sites with data from Google Spreadsheets. So basically you're using a Google Spreadsheet as your backend database. And that's awesome because people can share it. There's no dev environment. People who aren't developers know how to use spreadsheets. And so it's a really easy interface. So you can have a lot of people working together on the data and then you connect it to a website. And then once it's connected all you ever have to do is edit the spreadsheet. There's no deploying and things like that because every time someone visits your site, it's hitting the spreadsheet and getting the latest from the spreadsheet. So all you have to do is edit the spreadsheet and it lets you do tables and maps. <laughs> That's awesome. What made you want to make this? Um, this came out of my Code for America project that I did. Um, Code for America is a nonprofit in based in San Francisco that pairs designers, developers, and civic people with city governments to build open source software from them and or for them. <laughs> and I did that fellowship and I had come from the city of Boston previously and I was really keen on not creating new bottlenecks for city IT departments, which have to do everything. Um, and I felt like there were so many tools we take for granted on the web that would enable departments to manage and update their own websites without needing to go through IT for everything. And so that was what was kind of my guiding principle in it and what led me to pick spreadsheets um, in general. And so, yeah, I started building it out that year and it started off as a bunch of JavaScript built into a WordPress theme and then when the fellowship year was over, I got a grant from Mozilla Open News, which is a branch of the Mozilla Foundation that focuses on open source tools for journalism. 
And I got a code sprint grant from them to spend two months pulling out all the JavaScript and making it a standalone library. And so that's when it really became Sheetsy. Um, and then I just recently rewrote it a couple months ago. Yay, that's awesome. <laughs> I like that I'm saying yay. Um, what uh, What are some like cool uses that you've seen people uh, use Sheetsy for? Um, people have done it for meetups and schedules. Um, not everyone tells me what they do. Really, I have no idea what people are doing with it unless they unless they specifically go out of their way to show me. But what is also cool about it is you can use it with GitHub Pages, which is GitHub's free hosting service. And then people can just fork your site and then just make a few changes and quickly then have their own site going. And so like earlier this year in January, I tried to make a site myself where I thought that I was going to keep up with all the things that Trump was doing. And I was going to make a database of articles and label them by offense. And <laughs> but there's too many and you found the limit for for like Google Docs. <laughs> yeah, it, it snowballed really fast and was just too much work for a person who's not a journalist or reporter to <laughs> full time to be doing. <laughs> but somebody forked that site and then made a site for like important buildings in Baltimore. <laughs> That's cool. That's helpful if you're in Baltimore. <laughs> yeah. Totally. I've I've actually used Sheetsy a bunch of times and um the the use case that I always use it for is like, okay, so I have I have a, just a static website that displays some data and then I have people that need to add data to it that are not going to use GitHub. And the, the, the bar for like, like I don't want to set up a CMS or like a database or manage access controls or do like all that crazy stuff. So with just like a Google spreadsheet that like everybody knows how to use that you can add people to that like people know how to manage, you can then pull that data in and have it dynamically show up on the website. And it's just so brilliant and so easy. <laughs> Yeah. Sounds like a good way to internationalize a website. Just swap out the sheet. Oh, yeah. Or shop, really swap out idea. the column, I guess. So you have the English on the left, and then every column is the translation for a different language. Uh, that, that's, I do a lot of that. So I've actually seen that in practice, not with Sheetsy, but I've seen people use spreadsheets. But it would be nifty to kind of just connect it directly. Yeah, that's a really good idea. There's also, like, I haven't done this, but you could even just use your spreadsheet as a settings page to just generate a site, right? Like your spreadsheet could have columns and rows to say what color the page should be, what the header should be, and that kind of thing. And if you connect the site to that spreadsheet, then it will generate a whole new website based on what's in the spreadsheet. A whole new website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The I like like so I st I stole some of your code that you wrote once to do like a map with this and uh, and <laughs> I, it 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 made me also discover this like feature that I had no idea about in Google Sheets where like you can give it a column that has like an address in it and then it'll stick like the GPS coordinates in another column like that I had no idea that that was a thing but you you can use that to like you know create pretty awesome maps. Wait, is that a thing? <laughs> some it works somehow. <laughs> I had done that, but only using a plugin. Mapbox had a plugin for doing that. And I, I thought there, I, I don't know, maybe there is now like an, 
more native support in uh, spreadsheets. It was some kind of macro or something, but like I I ended up stealing it. (laughs) I have two technical questions about Sheetsy since I haven't uh, got the chance to use it. Can you use data from like a computed cell? What is a computed cell? <laughs> like it's like uh, I've added up every number in this row and it's like the equals sum of A1 through oh, A15. Right, right, right. Yes. Like anything that lives in a cell in your spreadsheet gets pulled out. So there's the actually data, though, not the not the formula. Right, right. OK, cool. And there's. Sheetsy pairs with this library called Tabletop.js, which gets all the data from Google Spreadsheets. It basically deals with the Google API for you, which if you interact with the API on your own, you get a ton of metadata and just like huge JSON back. And so Tabletop.js cleans it all up and gives you back like the pure and simple JSON that you would expect from your spreadsheet. But that actually also means that Sheetsy really just needs some JSON. So you actually don't even have to use a spreadsheet, which I also do sometimes. I have some projects where I keep stuff in a spreadsheet and then I just have a node script that uses tabletop and node to get the spreadsheet data. And then I do a bunch of stuff with the data and then I give the data to Sheetsy. So that was my second question is relying on Google Docs to be fast and or up for your website seems scary <laughs> once you hit some, like if, if it's a simple personal thing, whatever, my site goes down far more than Google Docs. But uh, but if you start, it, let's say your Trump thing becomes popular, you want it to stay up. Um, so it seems like you could then later on build that intermediary thing where like it doesn't directly connect to the doc, but you can generate the JSON from the doc at any point and like push an update, which seems... yeah. Cool. Yeah, so originally I wanted Sheetsy to be this really low barrier to entry thing. And, you know, it's like it doesn't take long to think like, oh, what happens when Google goes down? Because I have seen that happen. I remember specifically actually after the Boston Marathon bombing, people were putting addresses in a spreadsheet and it totally went down. It was too much traffic. But, of course, then once you add servers into the equation, it's no longer <laughs> this beginner-friendly yeah. thing. But, but it's kind of beautiful in the sense that like, you can start with the completely easy thing, and then once you hit the scale problem, it's the same amount of work as doing it up front. So it's kind of like this nice side effect of, of accidentally using tabletop to, <laughs> to, to I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's set up nicely. Yeah, but... Now that there's glitch.com, the greatest new website, <laughs> um, I have a sheetsy.glitch.me, and that is a sheetsy, a sheet, golly, okay, that is a sheetsy template that includes server backup because you get a free node server with every glitch project you do. And so, glitch actually, for me, was the way that took, oh my gosh, how do I get people a server easily problem and actually made it easy. So if you remix this glitch site, you get a blank Sheetsy setup um, and it just, it writes the data to the server and then we'll, if, if it can't go to Google and if it can't get your spreadsheet, then it will just use what was last saved. What's the likelihood of it being able to sync with like pouch on the client to where you can kind of 
sync data locally, go offline? Is there anybody who's hooked any of that up? I don't know of anybody who has, but it should be totally possible. Yeah, it seems it seems like all in, in line with that. Yeah, I also have another glitch that, um, because one thing that was annoying is if you just wanted JSON from your spreadsheet, it wasn't super easy to get. And basically, you would have to just set up a little node thing with tabletop and fetch your spreadsheet. But that was, I don't know, I love spreadsheets. So it was an annoying thing that I kept having to do. So I made another glitch that is sheetsy.glitch.me that you can just pass your spreadsheet key into and it creates like a single API endpoint and returns your JSON to you. Oh, that's really nice. That is I think cool. also, yeah, I think like even, I don't think that you would need pouch to cache this because you could just use a service worker to cache these simple requests, right? Like that would well, be even easier. It would need to cache like, I don't know, syncing data versus caching requests are kind of two separate things. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I see right. what you're saying, yeah. I'm playing with demos right now, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, playing with Sheetsy demos in the background. Is there anything else that you would like to add to Sheetsy that it doesn't have right now? Ooh. Um... Let's see. Well, one thing actually is not specifically with Sheetsy, but with Tabletop. Tabletop doesn't handle any errors that you get back from Google Spreadsheet. When would you ever get an error? That seems so Um, unlikely. (laughs) If you pass in the wrong spreadsheet key, for instance. Um, It just gives you someone else's spreadsheet, no problem. (laughs) (laughs) No, it just fails, and it fails in a weird way, and so you kind of have to deal with it yourself um, i mean as long as no one ever makes any errors it seems fine yeah 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 definitely um <laughs> don't don't mess up <laughs> just be perfect the first time and you shouldn't have any problems whatsoever yeah <laughs> One of the things that I love about this is like, I, I feel like all JavaScript tooling that I, I've used in the last like two or three years has been a giant compile chain and integrates into a giant compile chain. And this is like, oh, back in the days where you could just like insert an in cl- script include and then do stuff <laughs> in the body. It's like, oh yeah, this, there's actually cases where this is just so much simpler. Yeah. Actually, I um, that somewhat reminded me of uh, the first web development I ever did was uh, members.aol.com. I built a dirt bike website. I was not, I'd never, I literally still have never ridden a dirt bike to this day, but my first website was all about dirt bikes because my friend who taught me how to use members.aol.com had a dirt bike website and I just copied the crap out of it. Um, So that whole story is the next website I built uh, was for my little sister's soccer team. My dad paid me like five bucks a month to it was a trick, I think. Uh, I, I was like, I'm going to get money from my dad. And he was like, I'm going to uh, trick my son into learning web development and statistics. Um, and so I had to go to all of my sister's soccer games and keep stats on all the goals and assists and all those types of things. Um, and I kept it in a spreadsheet on my computer. And then I would have to like go calculate everybody's uh, stats. And then I would update a website with all their different stats on it. And I remember very specifically not knowing what a database was. And I, I, was, I was like, there's got to be a way for me to not have to just write HTML tables by hand and like generate <laughs> this based on my spreadsheets. And, and I remember very specifically searching in uh, AltaVista 
and saying like, uh, like way to get information from a computer spreadsheet and put into in and like I never found. <laughs> I I ended up running. Uh, I swear this is true. Uh, Macromedia uh, uh, <laughs> is like CF uh, Cold Fusion on my local computer like thinking that would solve the issue somehow and then it didn't like work once i deployed the site it was a nightmare and i didn't if someone would have just had this um when i was 10 it would have been really useful so (laughs) thanks a lot sorry i don't know if google docs existed when you were 10 fair Google didn't exist when you were there. <laughs> yeah, that's why I was altivisting things. <laughs> it would be really messed up if you were using like AOL pages when, <laughs> when Google oh existed. Oh my god! <laughs> it it is a really interesting problem that that you like once you know terms for things, like it's impossible for you to solve the problem. You oh. almost have to just like talk to someone who still doesn't know but like how do you search for what a database is before you know what a database is like if you know the term database you'll be like good beginner database and that's fine but if you're like literally saying like i want to retrieve information from a central repository <laughs> of ever like like it's just such a difficult thing to to describe like that you would never come across database maybe in in today's day and age and google being good at search i don't know it, it's just an interesting fun world <laughs> that we live in on that note uh, i think we're about time for the picks today so uh Alex, i want to go I... first okay all right <laughs> rachel's gonna go first <laughs> Um, I just don't want anybody else to pick my pick. Um, my pick of the week is a really interesting repository that someone emailed me about and I ignored at first, but then <laughs> other other people did not ignore it. And now it's got a bunch of stars on GitHub. It's called Chaos Bot. Um, and it's a social coding experiment that updates its own code democratically based on what the people that are involved with the project do. Like you can vote on things in order to get PRs merged. So it's kind of, it like reminds me of, um, I guess it reminds me of like Twitch plays Pokemon or like Twitch builds a computer or Twitch installs Linux because the 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 fate of the project is at the whim of the the people controlling it. So I think it'll be really interesting to see what they end up making with it. Oh, this is a very interesting experiment. I'm reading this now and I'm actually like fascinated by it. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, I think when I looked at it, it did not even have a ton of this stuff. And now there's like containerization and it's got like vagrant up. And if you can look at like all the open issues and pull requests and it's interesting how um, I feel like it was originally JavaScript. Maybe, maybe not. I Like I said, I ignored it at first because I'm a jerk. Um, now it's just a ton of Python. It's pretty cool. Um, I, I think I think my favorite thing here is that they have a death counter. So like people, you know hack it to merge things that actually break it <laughs> with the voting mechanism. And they're, they're really upfront about how many times the trunk has died because of this. Yes. <laughs> My favorite change that got made was <laughs> this guy, um, this guy got a PR in so that there was no voting weight on the voting and he was the sole person that could make decisions, <laughs> which was pretty cool. Um, yeah. I don't know if you look at the issues, uh, or I think it's in the main the main part. If you scroll down and um, 
the rulers at, section. Yeah. Yeah. The rulers <laughs> section. It says like it has been ruled democratically. It has been ruled by plasma power. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and anarchy a couple times. It's really good. Yeah. It's neat. That's awesome. Alex, you uh, want to go next? Well, yeah, I just wanted to mention that I searched for ChaosBot, and the first result is uh, on the Sonic News Network, as in Sonic the Hedgehog News Network. Uh, Wikipedia, like, they have their own wiki on wikia, sonic.wikia.com, and apparently there's a ChaosBot in uh, Sonic X number 28, which is a comic. Uh, so that's what, that's the true ChaosBot. Um, my pick <laughs> for this week is... Uh, Bobbly, uh, is how it's what? pronounced. Yeah, Bobbly. It's Bobbly, 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 Bobbly. If you ty- type its name into the say command, it, it will pronounce it correctly. Apparently, uh, it is uh, Babel Minify. So uh, uh, Stripe, for instance, uh, likes on its website only to ship ES6 code that works in all the browsers that everyone visits our site in. And it's kind of like a fun thing. We can push just real ES6 out without compiling it down with Babel or anything like that. And it, and it's cool. But uh, the bad thing about uh, shipping ES6 code is none of the current minifiers uh, support ES6. And so you throw ES6 code out and it'll, it'll fail. So you have to compile down to ES5 and then you can minify. So Babel is the first, uh, I, I think, the first uh, attempt at an ES6 minifier, so it'll minify down to the same syntax, just smaller and and whatever. And it's still in beta, uh, 0.0.1, uh, which is pretty beta. But uh, for small things, I think it's probably pretty safe. They have some tests against some common uh, open source things that appear to work still as well. So if you are interested in shipping ES2015 to the browser, it, it's a it's a good. Thing to start looking into and I, I imagine this type of thing will get much more popular yeah I, i'm using it in i think like five projects and only one of them um i i some module somewhere is doing something that uh it actually breaks on um it ends up outputting something that's that's not valid but um and but that was like six months ago that may be a bug that was fixed i i tried to track it down but like tracking down bugs in in minifiers is incredibly difficult it turns out so uh, I kind of gave up on trying to debug it at that point, but um, I'm really happy with it in the other projects that I'm using it. Cool. Yeah, if you're doing WebRTC experiments, it's easy to just ship ES6 to the browser because there's <laughs> the Venn diagram of browsers that support WebRTC and don't support ES6 features is not a thing. Yeah. <laughs> They're basically <laughs> the same. That's <laughs> decently true of the like animations and CSS that's written for a lot of the Stripe sites. So it's, it's mostly the thinking is you already have a broken experience. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's perfect. Um, okay, so my pro- my pro- my project of the week is um, it's called PKG um, package. It's uh, it's from Zeit, so they're the creators of Now and Hyper and a bunch of other awesome stuff. It's Guillermo Rauch's new company who started Socket.io. But um, PKG is something that I've wanted for a long time, which is um, 
basically take all of your node projects, so your code, all your dependencies, everything, and node itself, and turn that into one single executable file um, so that somebody can go and take that and run it on um, a similar environment, assuming that if you have native dependencies, it's going to have to be on the same architecture, I would imagine. Um, but they can just go and run that wherever. Um, and this is something that Go has had since kind of day one, like they designed it for this, um, but this has always been kind of a challenge with Node, but they have it, they have got it working apparently so um really really excited about this yeah jessica do you have a pick for us i do <laughs> i just can you'll have to just google this so i don't have to read out the url but it's a medieval fantasy city generator <laughs> That's awesome. i saw it come through my twitter feed this week and it's just a site someone built i guess it came out of some procedural generation subreddit um but you can choose if you want a small town large town small city large city and it will just keep generating you medieval cities like in plan they're really cool looking maps that's really oh, cool i saw I, that it it looked like um it, it's like top down view of yeah, like an yeah, architectural yeah. diagram yeah i actually oh wow i have the url for this if you give me one second i'll post it is it at what, what, what tobu.itch? Is that it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll, we'll have the link in the show notes for sure. Um, Adam Stachowiak just found the link to it and put it in the chat, in the live chat. So. Oh, well, yeah. never mind. If you look at the live <laughs> chat, you can pull it up. <laughs> it's really cool. Yeah, this is really, really cool. Wow. And it even has like labels over stuff. That's, that's so yeah. cool. Okay, that's awesome. All right. And that's our show for today. Uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, sorry that we were a little bit late on the live broadcast, but that's cool. Uh, for everybody, for the majority of people listening to this at home, uh, you probably don't care. Uh, <laughs> thanks for tuning in. Uh, that's all for today. We're out. Thanks, Jessica, for coming on. We really appreciated it. Thanks for having me. And thanks, Dan. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Bye. I wish I understood math. <laughs> Don't put that on the soundboard. <laughs> All right, thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Thanks also to our sponsors, Century and Hired. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to fastly.com to learn more. We host everything we do on Linode servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support the show. JS Party is hosted by Michael Rogers, Alex Sexton, and Rachel White. This show is produced by myself, Adam Stukoviak, and edited by Jonathan Youngblood. And the awesome music you've been hearing is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We do this show live every Friday at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern, noon Pacific. So join us at changelaw.com live. Slack with us in real time. Head to changelaw.com community and head to the JS Party channel in Slack. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening.